This week we're looking at North Korea's historic meeting with South Korea, Australia's expected US ambassador relocated to South Korea, Cuba's new leader, Italy's new election news, and a deeper dive on ASEAN's 32nd summit in Singapore on the 28th of April. Welcome to the Envoy podcast for the 27th of April. I'm your host, Nathan Shaw. Now on to this week's roundup. Kim Jong-un has become the first North Korean leader to cross into South Korea since the end of the Korean War in 1953. At a ceremonial meeting at the border truce village of Panamumjeon in the demilitarized zone, the South Korean President Moon Jae-in has personally invited Kim Jong-un into the country and they ceremoniously each stepped over to the other side before continuing into the south. There's ongoing speculation of why this historic meeting has taken place and why the North has agreed to walk into the South and engage in this treaty. Some put forward the dire economic situation in North Korea after the historic sanctions were leveled against it by majority countries in the around the world. Some experts argue that it is a continuation of the previous attempts at escalation then rehabilitation of the regime over time to slowly inch forward their capabilities over time without pushing the world too far. A part of the reason might be some related news. The University of Science and Technology of China, one of China's national research universities, has released a report stating that the Pengyiri nuclear test site, located close to the Chinese border in North Korea, has suffered from a series of tremors and landslides that has effectively collapsed the site. This is likely due to repeated nuclear tests in this area. And this provides very interesting background info because Recently, Kim Jong-un had uh, suddenly announced that the North Korea no longer needed this test site and that it was going to promise to dismantle it in the future. And many saw this as a great step forward and as actual solid evidence that the regime was potentially committed and, and took these denuclearization uh, talks quite seriously. This fact that the site has collapsed on its own somewhat undermines the rhetoric that we've heard out of North Korea. This North-South meeting is, in many ways, part of the lead-up to this historic meeting between President Trump and Kim Jong-un. We've also seen a surprise visit to Beijing by Kim Jong-un, demonstrating China's interest to make sure its voice is heard in that meeting, as well as a secret meeting during uh, Easter by Mike Pompeo, the now-confirmed Secretary of State for America this week, who has a very much a hardline approach and believes that sanctions backed by a threat of force has been what has forced the North Korean leaders to the table. And uh, he's pledged to maintain that pressure until these talks that are expected yield concrete results in the future. Now onto Australia and a related news to North and South Korea. The U.S. ambassador to Australia has suddenly been relocated to South Korea instead. We expected to see Admiral Harry Harris come to Australia to represent the U.S. as ambassador here, but he has just been shifted to South Korea before he's officially taken uh, his place here. Some policy analysts have said that this represents Australia being treated as a, a second-class ally. While it can be seen as treating Australia badly, and it's certainly not preferable for either country, it can also tell a little bit about how U.S. views Australia. The transfer to South Korea at this very critical time in North and South Korean relations shows how highly regarded Admiral Harry Harris was in the U.S. administration, which then reflects the fact that their first choice, if there was not a crisis ongoing, was to send this highly regarded uh, admiral to Australia, which then would actually make Australia seem like a first-class ally. And if it wasn't for this particular crisis, Australia could be rest assured that one of the U.S.'s most highly regarded ambassadors would be sent to Australia as opposed to any other country in the world. However, it's not 
preferable situation for either country. And the long delay, while it won't really impact the day-to-day -day operations of the links between Australia and the US, still from a public relations point of view, does not look good. Now to Cuba and its new historic leader. President Miguel Diaz Canel became president of Cuba on April the 19th. Canel is the first non-Castro president since the revolution occurred in Cuba. Some he is seen as a potential source of reform for the country. However, Raul Castro, the brother of Fidel Castro, still remains the first secretary of the Communist Party, a Cuba's only party, until 2021. This means that any attempts to reform are going to be likely countered by conservatives wanting to retain the country in the current state it is. One of the major issues facing the new president is the economic situation in Cuba. Cuba has really struggled to grow in the recent past. In addition, it has an unusual currency situation where it has two currencies in one country. In 1993, during a period of economic austerity known as the Special Period, basically a result of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the significant economic partner that Cuba had in the Soviet Union. In response to this, in 1994, the convertible peso was introduced at a par with the dollar. This means that employees of Cuban state and state enterprises are paid a basic salary in the national peso, and there is a performance-dependent bonus that you might receive of this convertible peso. And so the national peso is used for a lot of staple goods, just to be able to survive and buy usual goods, especially at state-owned enterprises. However, the convertible peso is often used to buy uh, luxury goods and services and a lot of imported goods. In addition, things that are intended for the consumption by foreigners in the country are paid for in this particular currency. The impracticality of the system has resulted in uh, a lot of state shops now accepting both currencies rather than just the national currency while they sell basic foods still at that national currency. This inefficiency of having two currencies is one of the many problems that face the Cuban economy, and President Miguel Diaz-Canel really has to grapple with this situation. And if he tries to open up the economy too much, he will see the conservative members of the Communist Party holding him back. But if he doesn't do enough on the economic front, the entire country will be upset with him, and he may be thrown out of power over time. Now for another update on Italy's election. Italy still remains without a newly formed government. However, there has been some changes in that the Five Star Movement, the anti-established populist movement that had originally been potentially making a coalition with the other originally opposition parties of the centre-right collapsed recently as the centre-right refused to budge on removing former Premier Silvio Berlusconi. The Five Star Movement demanded that the 81-year-old media magnate be dumped by the right coalition because he's regarded as a symbol of political corruption in the country. However, the center-right league was unwilling to make this concession, and thus the five-star movement has shifted from talking to the right to then talking to the left. The Democratic Party had, were the incumbent government, and they were thrown out of power and stated that they accepted the will of the people and they would go into opposition. However, they seem to have changed their tune where the five-star movement, after making overtures towards them, the Democratic Party has said that it is willing to negotiate and potentially form government with the Five Star Movement. However, this will still be fraught with difficulties as the Five Star Movement, as an opposition group, roundly criticized the Democratic Party and it would be very difficult to form a functioning government that could achieve many of the things that uh, Italians want if the two sides were to come together. That's it for this week's Roundup. Now onto this week's Deeper Dive. This week, we're going to take a closer look at ASEAN, which is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. And we've discussed them before. You may remember a news uh, piece we had on Indonesia 
discussing whether Australia might be invited to ASEAN and, and the various pros and cons from Australia's perspective of doing so. However, with the 32nd summit in Singapore due to take place tomorrow, the 28th of April, I thought this would be a good time to discuss the association further with some very interesting news. The foreign policy publisher, The Diplomat, has stated that it has leaked draft copies of statements that were going to be released by the association. As we've discussed in the past with Trump's surprise acceptance of the North Korean meeting, that normally these types of events are really just photo ops, that all the groundwork has been done before, and these documents demonstrate some of the groundwork that has happened in the past leading up to this summit. The important thing to remember with ASEAN is that it is built on a consensus model. Everyone has to come to an agreement, although otherwise nothing will be done. This means that all the countries will discuss back and forth, trying to find some kind of common ground, but it also means that one country, if it decides it doesn't want to agree with the rest, can effectively halt anything from occurring. One of the documents, which is the zero draft of the chairman's statement, is quite interesting in what it reveals. This statement had several annotations related to the South China Sea dispute, which many of the ASEAN countries are involved with, and also is a major source of contention with China. And these annotations uh, indicated support, rejection, or other comments on the wording by the various states involved in this summit. Of the various points in the document that were related to the South China Sea, there were 17 uh, annotations from six of the 10 ASEAN members. Cambodia topped the list with seven interventions, followed by the Philippines with three, Malaysia and Vietnam with two, and Indonesia and Singapore only with one. And only three of the seven South China Sea-related points were left unchallenged by the nations involved. For a bit more detail, for instance, in this document, Point 15, which is one of the seven that refers to the South China Sea, refers to candid discussions and in a following sentence says, we took note of concerns expressed by some ministers on land reclamations and escalation of activities in the area, island building, construction of outposts, and deployment of military assets in disputed areas. The Philippines requested the insertion of the words serious in front of concerns and massive in front of island building to play up the language. However, Cambodia moved to retain the original wording. In other words, Cambodia has been seeking to water down the language in this document. The next point, point 16, called for a full respect for legal and diplomatic processes. Cambodia called for this wording to be deleted, while Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, Singapore, and Vietnam called for its retention. This is quite important because Philippines in the past engaged in a legal dispute and arbitration with China over the issue of the South China Sea dispute. And after the Philippines won that, China stated that it disregarded the result. Ever since, many experts have been waiting for ASEAN to back the Philippines by stating this kind of respect for the legal and the rules-based order is often referred to resolve the issue rather than who has the strongest power in the area. If this wording for legal and diplomatic processes stays in the document tomorrow, it'd be very surprising and it would be a major step forward for ASEAN in terms of coming together and being firmer on the South China Sea dispute. In point 17, the Philippines and Vietnam specifically tried to include a reference to this arbitration between the Philippines and China that the Philippines won. This is quite interesting because up until now, President Duterte has declared that he wouldn't press China on the implementation of the basically award of the UNCLOS stating that the Philippines was right to be there and China could not move in. Duterte would be seen as someone who is somewhat pro-China, and so this may reflect a change in foreign policy in the Philippines from being pro-China to being somewhat more neutral. This is quite an interesting behind-the-scenes look at how diplomats actually work in the real world. 
Cambodia has taken the position that disputes in the South China Sea are bilateral issues, that they're between each country and whoever they else have a dispute with, rather than being a matter for ASEAN. However, Cambodia doesn't have a large stake in the South China Sea dispute of its own accord, and so it would seem strange why it would take this particular strong position that the ASEAN shouldn't get involved. However, it makes sense when you know that Cambodia is backed by China, and therefore, through Cambodia, China is able to influence the ASEAN. This means that any statements that come out from the ASEAN are usually watered down by Cambodia, by its objections to wordings and segments, and also it prevented ASEAN from issuing a joint statement back in 2012 on the South China Sea dispute. And so this draft copy that's been leaked provides us this great look at what before and after and see what actually makes it into the final document and see how far ASEAN has been willing to move on this particular issue. Because up until now, ASEAN, while committed to this kind of rule-based regional order and international law, has been hesitant to do anything that would upset China too much. And particularly because ASEAN has Cambodia in it, and so even if the other countries did want to take a stronger stance against China, Cambodia, through the consensus model, could basically water down and prevent them from saying anything. This is one of the criticisms of ASEAN, and that it can't do anything on contentious issues, and thus there's limitations in how effective and useful it can be in the international system. I hope you've enjoyed this deeper dive, and I'll certainly come back with news of how this turns out and see if anything major happens in terms of the actual statement that comes out tomorrow. That's it for this week's podcast. I've been your host, Nathan Shaw. As always, you can find us at www.envoyfpa.org. You can also contact us on our email, envoyuwa at gmail.com, with any questions, requests, or feedback you might have. We'll be back next week with more news and foreign policy analysis.